This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Mary Louise McLaws. Mary Louise is an epidemiologist from the University of New South Wales, and she joined me to discuss the rising cases of COVID-19 in Victoria, Australia, as well as the subsequent lockdown of Metropolitan Melbourne and Mitchell Shire. We talk about the essential differences between a suppression strategy and an elimination strategy. We also look at the growing evidence around the effectiveness of mask wearing to reduce transmission of the virus. Mary Louise is a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control, Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. I'm really, really pleased to have such a distinguished guest on the show. Her name is Professor Mary Louise McLaws. She's an epidemiologist at the University of New South Wales, and um, she's also doing some really important work at the more global level, and I'm going to read out the proper title. Um, She's a member of the advisory panel for the World Health Organization, particularly the advisory panel for infection prevention and control preparedness and response to COVID-19 which, of course, is the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, which is also kind of commonly termed the coronavirus at the moment. Of course, there are a number of other coronaviruses, but uh, this one is really obviously front and centre for clear reasons. Um, I'm really pleased to welcome Mary Louise uh, McLaws now to talk all about uh, Victoria's situation and, of course, uh, beyond. Thanks so much, Mary Louise, for joining us. My pleasure. It's so great to have you on the show, and I think we've heard a lot in recent months, I guess, about armchair epidemiologists, but I wonder whether you could share with us what the job of an epidemiologist really entails and the types of things that governments and other world bodies call on epidemiologists for. Well, epidemiology is... um basically looking at patterns of disease. And there are many different types of epidemiologists. There are those uh, that look at uh, non-communicable diseases like you know, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Then there are others that look at influenza, so uh, infectious diseases, or outbreaks. So I'm one that looks at uh, hospital infection outbreaks and infection control and keeping patients safe in hospitals, uh, and that's where I've, um, I guess, honed my expertise in infection prevention and control. And also I've had um, some experience with SARS uh, at the outbreak in 2003, evaluating the response uh, in hospitals and also the response in Beijing. Because, you know, you can learn a lot from uh, how you've done and where you should have gone right. And I think the... um, uh, look back at the, the learned process of Beijing was that uh, ring fencing of that uh, large, lovely city would have or could have changed the course of history. And so uh, China learned from that uh, report that we did and they did a, a rapid lockdown of Wuhan and then, of course, Hubei and other places around China. So Yeah, so there are epidemiologists like myself that look at outbreaks or in the community or in hospitals, um, and we're looking for patterns. And we also, uh, if we've been around for a while, we also look at behavior because the uh, intersection between human behavior 
and the virus, whichever that virus is, uh, dynamics is really important because the virus normally from animals uh, won't get into humans and then spread unless uh, it utilises our behaviour, which this one and SARS and Ebola and MERS has done very successfully. So you don't just look at the pattern of the disease, but you have to think about how did this virus um, utilise uh, our subconscious or, or breach of protocol so that we can prevent it happening in the future. So it's, it's all about responding rapidly and learning rapidly so we don't keep making the same mistakes again. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it was interesting to see in the early days of uh, COVID-19, really, given that we didn't understand this virus, and it was obviously a novel coronavirus that we hadn't yet dealt with, that there was a lot of guessing around what is the adequate level of PPE, personal protective equipment, and does the uh, virus spread through droplets? Is it airborne? And we've just recently seen in uh, the last few days that the World Health Organization said that it couldn't really out that COVID-19 could be spread through the air in an airborne sense. So we are still, it seems like, learning more and more about how coronavirus is spread, but also how it is experienced in different parts of the population. And I wonder in your field and given your experience with SARS uh, the first time around, were there some of those lessons around, uh, you know, hospital infection control and PPE and how one might uh, protect our healthcare workers, which of course, um, they are certainly on the front line and uh, have been greatly at risk recently in Victoria. We've seen a lot more infections in that particular group of people. Yeah. So first of all, I'll go back to airborne. So for your listeners, there may be many of them that have got um, uh, a great understanding of particle sizing. So we separate and categorise particle sizing for how we think we get disease into droplets, they're the large ones, over five microns, or are very small into droplet nuclei, uh, less than five microns. And we've, only, we've woke, as the American expression, uh, to the idea that infections, respiratory infections expelled from the mouth through singing, coughing, even speaking, uh, can be expelled in different sized particles. Once upon a time, Everyone thought that flu was only spread by very small particles, aerosolized droplet nuclei. Uh, my PhD student, um, uh, Dr. Jan Grolton, and uh, her other supervisor, Professor Bill Rawlinson, and myself and Ewan Tovey uh, from Sydney University uh, got together as a group and we did some lab studies where Jan uh, had patients with influenza A, B and other respiratory infections breathe through what we call an Anderson sample so that their membranes are different sizing. And we identified that, in fact, influenza is not just expelled as one size particle and neither was respiratory uh, syncytial virus, which was thought to only be droplet. So we found that, in fact, there were many different sized particles that that you could categorise in those two areas. But what we don't know, what we didn't know then, and what we still don't know, and a group of scientists believe that, uh, and they differ from WHO, is we still don't know whether COVID-19 is spread by those tiny particles. We have at WHO always acknowledged 
that healthcare workers are at risk from those small aerosolized particles, and that's why we get them to wear a, a certain type of uh, mask called a particulate or a respirator or an N95. Um, and while they're doing things like intubating a patient, putting a tube uh, down um, into their airways, because that can then uh, produce very, very tiny particles. And uh, it's believed that a medical mask doesn't provide enough protection while you're doing that and your face is very close to the patient and they have to wear a face shield as an additional precaution. So WHO has never disagreed with that. Um, neither have they ever disagreed with the idea that ventilation is very important. So we've put in uh, a lot about uh, air changes. So there has been testing of air samples, and they have found, um, because aerosolized particles hang in the air for longer, they have found some COVID-19 in the air, suggesting that it was in these small particles. But what the scientists haven't been able to prove and what we didn't prove when we found um, the different sized particles with the, um, in 2013 when we did that lab study was are they in infectious dosing? So these tiny particles, do they have enough of COVID-19 on them and uh, to breathe in to then penetrate the epithelial cells or the alveoli deep into your lungs? So while it's theoretically possible, We've said that if you're going to, if you're a healthcare worker and you're going to do a procedure that could place you at risk, always wear a particulate mask. But if you're in the community, like you're listening, it's unlikely that you need that type of protection. Um, but it doesn't mean that one day you might be in a restaurant or in a bar or a club and somebody's coughed at one end and it's spread to you. And that's why overcrowding and indoors is um, this virus's friend. It loves overcrowding and um, poor airflow. It uh, doesn't like natural airflow um, because it pushes all the particles uh, down onto the ground faster uh, than a slower change in airflow. So we, we accept that there are all of these possibilities, but we've looked at the pattern of the epidemiology, particularly in the community, and determined that it is safer if we get you to wear either a medical mask, even though they're sometimes at low supply, or a cloth mask, because there's really good uh, evidence now that the newly made three-layer cloth masks, they don't give you the same protection as a medical mask, but they do give you better protection than a bare face, and they can be quite comfortable to wear. Yes, absolutely. And it is um, potentially easier to fit a cloth mask if you can customise it to your own face size, because that's another thing that I know some women in particular have found is the one-size-fits-all surgical masks can often not fit securely enough around the face and the bridge of your nose. Yes, we found that in um, to the group uh, at WHO that I'm part of, uh, and that one of the representatives from Africa has found that some of these uh, medical masks don't suit um, the, the African healthcare workers, and in Asia, um, it doesn't fit their nose very well either. So they are making masks according to potentially a, um, a longer uh, sided nose, you know, with a very um, elevated uh, bridge of the nose so that you can then pinch that 
metal part of the medical mask to fit the nose. So I think the producers need to realise that there are all different um, sizes and shapes of noses and they need to be more accommodating. And out in the community, that's absolutely the case. WHO has a website you can get onto to show you how to, how to make the mask and, um, and how to make sure that it comes up to the bridge of your nose, to the side of your face, um, near your jawbone, and then below your chin. So you can uh, speak uh, without your uh, breath uh, escaping the mask. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it is important to note, because I think some people have felt that it was more comfortable to have it sitting under the nose, but it is really important that it actually sits over the nose, up to the bridge of the nose, because obviously uh, that's another part of reducing transmission, isn't it? That's right. I mean, you see on television, healthcare workers swabbing the inside of the nose uh, quite deep um, past um, the mares, which... um, uh, and, and past um, turbinates where that actually stop um, dust from going into your lungs. It can be a little uncomfortable, but that's where this virus can sit. Uh, it does prefer in the lower airways, but that's where they can test for it. So if it sits in your nose, at the back of your nose, you don't want the mask under the nose because if you're breathing heavily, it can come out of your nose. And if you're standing close to somebody, they can breathe it in, particularly if you're standing uh, close to them for a long period of time. And we estimate that that period of time is about 15 minutes because, look, that's fairly arbitrary, but basically it's a long period of time. Yes. I'm interested in your understanding around the role of masks and the level of which it can reduce transmission. There was some really interesting commentary from the chief health officer in Victoria who was citing a a Lancet meta-analysis study that recently came out, and that was one of the reasons why he changed his recommendation and suggested that those who can't adequately distance, socially distance the 1.5 metres, are advised to wear a mask. It's not obviously mandatory in Victoria, um, but we also did see even overseas some countries like Germany and different cities in Germany, like the city of Jena, um, became an early adopter of masks. And we did see a study recently suggest that it reduced transmission to potentially even 40%. So uh, it was interesting that there are various amounts of figures around how much it could reduce transmission, but the chief health officer did mention it might be able to reduce transmission if we had a significant uptake of people wearing it of up to two-thirds. What are your thoughts around those types of figures? Well, at WHO, we were presented with the preprints of that paper and we're presented with many preprints and uh, the guidelines that were released on the 5th of June included that. So this knowledge has been out there uh, since the beginning of June and it's taken Australia, uh, sadly, until we've got this uh, multiple clusters in Victoria to start rethinking and as a WHO advisor to WHO and on that committee I've been trying to get the community to hear that you're at more risk with a bare face if you're in a high-risk area and those high-risk areas are quite frankly getting on an aeroplane. I'm not sure why uh, we haven't made that mandatory because you're sitting in an aeroplane for over an hour and even though they say they have a HEPA filter, doesn't prevent you from getting it. Uh, We have HEPA filters in 
uh, respiratory wards uh, and the negative air pressure room where the healthcare worker still has to wear a mask because that HEPA filter works to filter the air out so that when you open the ward door, that a contaminated air doesn't go into uh, the corridor and contaminate uh, people walking by. So that HEPA filter in the aeroplane won't help you. Uh, it might if you're at one end of the plane compared to the other, but you still need to wear a mask within that environment. It, it may help um, the pilot coming out of the cockpit, but even then, um, if somebody's been up near um, the pointy end of the plane uh, and coughing or breathing, um, it won't help. So we need to wear a mask on an aeroplane. We need to wear a mask on public transport or in lifts or in public places where you want to uh, shop. I can't keep your distance because we Australians are very sociable and we're not very good at keeping our distance. And so um, I'm pleased that uh, the chief health officers and the health officers in each state are now starting to hear uh, the message from WHO um, and, uh, of course, via the original uh, piece of, of research, but there were many other pieces of research that we included in that guideline. And when we looked at face masks that were alternative to medical masks uh, at the beginning of the outbreak, we weren't very impressed with them because they were, uh, it was old data on old uh, cloth masks. And we wanted medical masks to not be at um, short supply for the frontline health workers. But now people are making better masks and the evidence is um, much more convincing where uh, some uh, masks can uh, protect you 30%, but others can protect you up to um, from 30 to 70%. Now, a good medical-grade mask will protect you from 95% or more. So a 70% protection, if you're wearing it and somebody else is wearing it, uh, you are uh, effectively uh, really well protected. Um, and, look, there has been the argument that one of the reasons that Australians weren't asked to wear a mask was that they feared that people touching the outside of the mask would contaminate themselves. Well, they've done a study, it was only a small one, there are some problems with the methodology, the way they tried to yield the virus off the front of the mask of a healthcare worker on a ward that wasn't doing an aerosol-generating procedure, so it was a medical-grade um, mask, and they found no a virus on the outside of the mask. Now, that's um, uh, a little convincing in that if they didn't find it doing regular care, uh, so that there wasn't this build-up, then potentially um, the population uh, are at very little risk of contaminating themselves by touching the outside of their mask that's potentially contaminated. But I also also say to those people that use that as an argument for why we can't trust the public to use a mask. Is Well, I prefer them to use a mask than have a bare face. If they can't keep the social distancing, because if they've got a bare face, they are definitely going to be contaminated. And if their hands are contaminated, all we need to do is tell them, try not to touch your mask. And um, if you do, use alcohol-based hand drop carried around in your pocket or your handbag. 
are because you know Australians have a very high level of education, and uh, we can um, uh, teach Australians how to do things very safely. Uh, we we teach them lots of public health um, interventions uh, that don't then place them at risk of another disease necessarily, because that's what the that's what the other argument was. Well, if we focus on this, they're not going to take up hand hygiene and they're not going to take up social distancing. Uh, but that hasn't been proven that once we get you to wear a mask, you're not going to do the other things. Um, so I think that a mask in those crowded conditions, given that Melbourne and Sydney have a potential problem at the moment, they, it will send a, a very strong public health message that there's a risk out there. Now, you don't need to use a mask in public in all the other states and territories because um, you've got very close to eradication in those other states and territories, and the, the benefit is very minimal uh, compared to the annoyance of wearing a mask. And certainly in the situation Victoria finds itself in, people uh, will be going outdoors far less frequently at the moment, so they'll be need to be used less, but certainly can be used in that targeted way when they're outside doing those essential activities. I did talk to one of my close friends from university who is South Korean and lives in Seoul, and I asked about masks, and I wonder, and I did ask about, you know, the cultural etiquettes um, and whether mask wearing was common in South Korea. And she said that it wasn't really as common to the extent that it was in Japan, in some of the other Asian countries. But once their government had told them this is essential, which is basically at the beginning of the pandemic, the population really behaved and, and followed that guidance very closely and strictly. And I was wondering about those, when you were talking earlier about behaviour and that being a really important part of public health management and infection control, whether governments are assuming that Australia doesn't have the same types of cultures that lend itself to masks and whether that is potentially a misnomer? So it's my observation that countries that have experienced SARS or MERS have uh, a much uh, faster uptake of public health messaging and their uh, outbreak epidemiologists uh, have been primed in a previous outbreak uh, on how to go in um, early and hard, the public are more um, accommodating of that approach. And so they've been able to uh, control this outbreak very well. So uh, South Korea um, has had a resurgence uh, when they lifted restrictions, and this is sadly commonplace. But um, certainly... South Koreans who had had MERS and had been under restrictions because of MERS were much faster at accommodating um, their government's uh, request. And the same thing in Taiwan, um, China. Um, but, you know, Australia is a multicultural, multi-faith community. And um, we should be working on that uh, because uh, we have many migrants uh, residents, citizens from Asian countries that can lead the way and, and show us how to do this. I know that uh, when I go to Melbourne, it's a very multicultural uh, city, and I think that um, we should be working on the uptake and you know the, the, that cultural uptake of mask 
wearing in the city by um, you know, congratulating our Asian Australians for uh, their adoption, their rapid adoption, because uh, we really believe that it has uh, assisted greatly uh, their uh, success in, in Seoul and, and other countries in Tokyo, etc. Yeah, it's so true. You do see that in uh, in the Melbourne inner CBD really very frequently. And uh, I agree, it's something that a lot of my friends who hail from Asia would do as a, something that's second nature. If they start to feel unwell, they don't want to spread it to anyone else. And so they use a reusable cloth mask and it does make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it might take hopefully not too long for Victorians and Australians to uh, make it become second nature. I am talking to Professor Mary Louise McLaws, who is an epidemiologist at UNSW and also an advisor to the World Health Organization on infection control and for prevention um, and other matters relating to COVID-19. Um, I did want to ask about, I guess, what is a burning question for many Victorians who find themselves in this situation um, and, you know, obviously to a very different situation to their state counterparts in Australia. We have, you know, had, a, I guess, a public discussion around why Victoria has seen such a huge increase in community transmission and, um, and when that started and what the kind of responses can be and should be and what we might learn from this second wave, I guess, um, which some people are calling it. And we did see, you know, a very kind of gradual but then very steady increase in cases before the school holiday started here in Victoria. And uh, there were a lot of kind of nervous people, particularly from the regional areas, concerned about, um, you know, the virus moving throughout the state and having increased community transmission. And I wonder if you could shed some light on it for us from an epidemiological perspective and you've seen I guess the increasing clusters and where they've come from and the types of transmission environments that seem to have um, increased our cases. What do you think some of those factors have been in this second wave that has caused this really harsh lockdown of six weeks here in particularly metropolitan Melbourne? Look you've got a unique issue going on in Melbourne. You've got a highly socialised, interconnected cultural group that have um, uh, live in uh, close, confined areas that have uh, large or extended families and have extended cultural connections uh, religiously or socially. And then you've got the breach in protocol in the quarantine hotel. So... Well, that spilled over into the families and then the families spilled it over into other families and their wider community. Uh, so it's a perfect but nasty storm. And I think the lesson that can be learned from that is don't assume that a community that has uh, English as an additional language uh, accesses um, mainstream radio, TV or newspapers or that their uh, original language is uh, proficient enough to read it because we know that many people that come to this country have come from a war-torn um, area or places where their education has been interrupted. And then they go on to leading highly productive, wonderful lives here. Uh, and we need to uh, accommodate 
their ability to get this information. We can't expect them to come to the information. So the learning lesson here is go out to our communities um, that live in crowded conditions. It's often a proxy for poor working conditions and therefore a potential for spread within that and also maybe not getting access to mainstream um, messaging and that we need to work through their religious or cultural or uh, social leaders or their you know, leaders within um, housing groups and uh, don't wait. Uh, and epidemiologists need to not just look at the numbers, but I, I've always gone for the walk, the walkthrough, uh, to identify what the area looks like. What am I dealing with here? And it gives you a really uh, good sense of uh, how the virus can utilise environments as well. And uh, the other message is we need to not wait for the next time and go to uh, working conditions such as you know, the abattoirs we know are problematic, uh, any factory lines where you can't change the built environment and identify whether or not they can wear face shields because they probably can't wear a mask for eight to ten hour shifts. But you make sure that their, their lunch area uh, has um, perspex divides so they can take their face shield or mask off and eat without um, infecting others. So there are many things that you can do to be proactive to prevent this from ever happening again. Yeah, and uh, it is interesting that we are dealing with that set of circumstances, as you said, around the physical living environments, um, as well as, you know, some very large family groupings. And, you know, depending on living arrangements, it can be really difficult to social distance. And I know that there's been a lot of discussion around uh, public housing as just one example of where it is very difficult for residents to be able to adequately social distance from each other in, a, you know, very narrow corridors, using lifts, shared spaces and, of course, uh, being very social and having a great number of friends and, you know, allies and acquaintances in the same building means that there is more or increased socialisation. And I wondered, given that we are in this second round, are there ways that we might think about how we could prevent a third round, a future clusters and outbreaks in these um, environments where housing arrangements are very crammed or are very small and um, and what might some things be from an epidemiological perspective that a state government might consider around trying to prevent this from happening again? Um, I think that, um, you know, leadership, is, you will always expect to make errors, always, in outbreaks, even if you've done MERS and Ebola or SARS before. Um, but what... Uh, uh, good leadership and good epidemiology is is learning before the fact. So acting rapidly, either learning from our neighbours in the north, and I'm talking about Asia or New Zealand, and ensuring that you don't repeat the same mistake again. For example, the Diamond Princess, um, you don't want to repeat that again, but we did. Uh, you don't want to repeat the same mistake again that uh, these uh, family clustering in other parts of Victoria or in, um, in New South Wales. So it's all about getting the public to accept proactive uh, response rather than reactive response because you're never going to be uh, popular doing an outbreak investigation. You're either going to act 
too fast or that's how the public perceive it and they can't see a benefit because you've prevented something or you've acted too slow and there's an enormous struggle and then there's lockdowns. So I prefer to be disliked and act fast and that's what all of this um, sadness that's, you know, challenges that's happening in Melbourne need to um, constantly remind the public except uh, early intervention uh, because that's what will save the city, basically. Now, we do know that in um, New South Wales we have a problem with bars and clubs and that's because this virus loves the socialising of human beings. And so what can we learn from that? Well, we either have to learn to go back to a smaller number of um, patrons uh, like you are now in Melbourne. Um, you're now no longer allowed to go to places like that. Or you become pre- um, preactive, you know, um, responsive and say, how can I ensure that if you go to these clubs, you stay at a, a distance? Well, you can't. And so you've either got to wear a facial, which will be a bit difficult to drink your, 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 your um, glass of beer through it. So you're going to have to do lots of things like um, ensure you can't come in unless every single person uh, has a name and a bona fide phone number that they can contact trace. And it's all about rapid contact tracing to put the next possible source of infection out of circulation. So it's about learning fast, but also being responsive to somebody else's a loss and um, an outbreak and go, well, we're not going to wait for that to happen. We're going to be doing something different. Yeah, it's a really important point because I know we've had discussions in the past or in the first wave when we were talking about the fact it should feel like an overreaction rather than an underreaction or a cautious approach. And uh, the second time around, just before the uh, school holidays, to me at least, it felt like an underreaction or a very, you know, we'll wait and see, softly, softly approach rather than just a let's get this under control straight away before it becomes something else. But as you say, it's something that obviously we will learn from. One of the other parts of this picture that I'd love to get your views on that actually we have heard uh, more discussions about in recent days, again, um, was the discussion of the suppression strategy that was agreed to by the National Cabinet, which was advised by the AHPPC, And uh, Brett Sutton, our Victorian Chief Health Officer, just recently, I think it was on Saturday, kind of left the door open to looking at an elimination strategy and said that we really shouldn't discount that as a future choice and a future option, given where um, the rest of the Australian states stand in comparison to Victoria. And I'm just going to play a really short clip and hopefully you can hear it because this is a new system I'm using. But if you can't, I'll repeat what Brett has said in a summary. But I just wanted to share this with the listeners, if you can indulge me for a moment. Um, it, was a, it was a decision of National Cabinet. AHPPC um, provided the, the pros and cons, if you like, of suppression and elimination. Uh, as a public health person, uh, I'd be very happy if elimination were a, a feasible um, thing to achieve because... Uh, it has its own challenges. Uh, you, you absolutely need to not reintroduce virus at any point once you've eliminated it because it'll take off. 
Um, but the challenges of suppression are, are very substantial as well, especially if a vaccine is two years away or 18 months or more away. Um, so I think uh, it's, not, um, it's not the national decision at the moment. I would hope that as we move through this phase in Victoria and look at uh, everything else that's occurring across the rest of Australia, that we don't close ourselves off to a re-evaluation and a reappraisal uh, of what's feasible and, and what the pros and cons are. So that was interesting to me when I heard it. Were you able to hear that, Mary Louise? No, but... Um, Just so you know uh, what I played, he was saying he hopes that there would be room for a re-evaluation and, and an openness to an elimination strategy because from a public health perspective, although elimination has its challenges, it would obviously be better for us in the medium to long term with the vaccine potentially quite a while away. Absolutely. Um, that's why you know I've been advocating like a broken record, and others uh, mm. are now starting to come on board. Once you've seen a nasty um, pandemic like SARS, you, you don't go for that unethical, untried, unscientific approach of herd immunity, like a couple of countries around the world are, and you also uh, don't wait. And you try to go for elimination because you know you're never going to get there. But when you're getting very small numbers, the impost on human traces and the, um, the resources that that takes is very minimal. So that when you do get an outbreak, a small one or even a large one, you've got all of the contact traces and, and you've got... Uh, full resources to throw at it and uh, squash it immediately before that little ember becomes a bushfire. Uh, and that is the whole reason. Uh, now, from an epidemiologist perspective, now from an economist perspective, and I'm not an economist, and an outbreak investigators should never be economists. That's not our job. It's the job of um, the, uh, the leaders uh, to decide how they're going to balance it, but then if they um, don't want to take up the approach of the epidemiologist, they have to accept that they will get criticism uh, because we've seen it before. This is not a learning process for us. We've seen it before. So you go for eradication and then the economists will say, uh, in hindsight, well, actually, because there have been a few that have now come uh, around, uh, that it has less impact economically and less impact emotionally and um, uh, psychologically. If you go for eradication, get the numbers really down low so that you can then lift all of the borders around Australia and have um, the borders lifted with light-type countries such as South Korea, uh, Taiwan, New Zealand um, and others in the region. So that you can open up a bit, and then of course that improves the economy as well. Um, so uh, that's the reason why outbreak managers such as myself have have never um, supported the idea of containment um, because it it doesn't work with uh, something that we already thought had a reproductive number of over two, which means for every person who has it, they can give it to two others because. In a similar situation, if you're in a uh, religious meeting or a wedding or a party or um, in the abattoirs in a crowded working conditions, uh, that too, that reproductive number can uh, blow out to six and more. 
So if you go for elimination rather than this containment, uh, you've got much better control over the next time uh, this virus sneaks around. And it always will because there's a proportion, we think it's somewhere between 15 and maybe 20% of cases are truly asymptomatic. They don't seem to witness they have any symptoms. But we think they're at a lower uh, infectivity to others, but they still, in close um, uh, situations, they can still spread it, we think. Uh, when We don't have a lot of scientific understanding of asymptomatics, uh, not as much as we do about those that are pre-symptomatic, that they become infectious, certainly when they're symptomatic, but potentially from the epidemiology two days before. So we've got a group out there that will potentially be uh, causing some infections, and that's why when you go for eradication, um, the, those infections they cause uh, are much easier to control further spread. Mm, that's a, a really interesting uh, point that you're making, and it does seem really important in the context of rising hospital admissions and also um, rising numbers of people in intensive care in Victoria, because the the kind of effects of going into intensive care and being put on a ventilator are not just short term. There can be certainly long term effects of having to had an ICU stay, and there's also other really kind of I guess just emerging evidence around some of the medium to potentially long-term effects of having a severe case of coronavirus and um, potentially having after effects of fatigue. We've seen some discussion of small proportions of people having neurological symptoms and damage to their brains in very small cases, but it is interesting to see that it's not just about quote-unquote mild cases and the other cases where someone is admitted to hospital or ends up in ICU, there seems like there are a lot of other consequences to not having the virus at least controlled but preferably, as you say, eliminated. What are your thoughts from the perspective of you know, advising the World Health Organisation and no doubt being across a lot of the evidence around that in the emerging areas? Look, we don't know who's going to be one of these cases that you've mentioned. Um, that is why predicting who's going to be the unfortunate person with uh, neurological complications. And that neurological complication can also occur post-treatment as well. Now, during SARS, they had nothing to give critically ill people and they did try to give them some steroids. And there was long-term consequences with neuropathy, so with some nerve damage. Um, this time around, they're giving much lower doses, but only for people on um, mechanical ventilation, so seriously ill people. They may or may not have long-term damage. Um, we're hoping that because it's a lower amount that we may see uh, fewer adverse consequences. But even for the misnomer of mild case, and I think it really should be called not needing to be admitted to hospital case where and they not need a medical intervention per se. Uh, you hear a lot of survivors talking about uh, not, not being perfect at six weeks, which is the official um, period of time um, that people are becoming um, supposedly over it and not infectious anymore. And I think it's beholden to the society to have those people talk. Uh, we need to have those that bounce back or hardly felt it, uh, but we also need to talk. 
and have that conversation with people about how they felt, uh, the fear, um, the exhaustion, and uh, where they're up to uh, now so that the community can understand why the authorities have uh, been uh, so, I guess, uh, working hard towards uh, reducing infection, but why outbreak investigators want to see no one getting it. So we want to go for eradication. In um, New York City, we don't know if it's because they have a slightly different strain or if it's because of the underlying poor health of some of the New Yorkers, but you're seeing young people in their 30s and 40s having stroke and clots, and not just in arteries, but in tiny veins. And that means that surgeons really can't remove them all. It's uh, very difficult when um, a patient has multiple clots, and it can be uh, not just to the brain, but other organs as well. So they are incredibly ill and sometimes they don't get to hospital fast enough. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there are many uh, versions of this from death to um, potentially long-term ill effects to I didn't even know I had it. Uh, and we can't predict who will ha have which outcome. And so that's why eradication is the best one to go for from an epidemiological and a clinical perspective but hopefully the economists will get on board to say, actually, it's the best way to go in hard and fast and for them to take on our um, outbreak manager's mantra, go in early, go in hard, so that they can then help uh, the authorities to see that it's uh, really uh, the best approach so that we can then all go back to having a sociable life and then if we do see the occasional case, uh, we're faster uh, and more effective at removing that threat to the to the wider community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned those vascular effects, and um, I know that there are other things like encephalitis and uh, even post-viral syndromes and diseases like Guillain-Barre and myalgic encephalomyelitis and transverse myelitis, which are all obviously rare, but certainly things that can happen. So it's really interesting to hear your views on that. Just finally, um, I did want to mention schools because there are discussions now around children to children transmission and also children to adult and um, whether the evidence has shifted or changed at all, given we've seen such huge clusters in some cases in schools, which of course are not just confined to school in terms of um, potential areas of transmission that could have come from outside of school. But I wonder from your perspective, looking at, from a very high level at, across all the data and emerging evidence, whether there is a, a different or a changing view around children and, and transmission of the virus. So in February um, 11 and 12, we had a face-to-face -face meeting at WHO of 400 experts across nine themes, which included um, zoology and epidemiology and clinical care and all sorts of areas. And we identified what we knew and what we didn't know. And then we met again virtually this time on July uh, 1 and 2. And uh, children came up and what we have, we still don't know a lot, but um, what we do think uh, we feel comfortable with is anyone who's 18, 17 or 18, starts physiologically behaving like an adult. They are at risk of 
acquiring COVID more so than their younger siblings. Particularly, they've kind of um, got it at the age of about 14, 16, 14. You physiologically um, are at less risk. We think it's because of the upper airway response um, that basically shuts out the, the virus from getting to the lower airways or that the body um, elicits an enormous immune response and therefore uh, it is um, protecting the child. Um, but we also uh, have identified that children uh, less than 17 years of age are usually acquired as the last case within a family cluster. And so they're often seen as asymptomatic, but it could just be that they haven't had follow-up to identify uh, how long it took symptoms. So at the moment, we still think they're more asymptomatic or mild symptoms, but as I said, we haven't had really good longitudinal follow-up of those kids. But we think that they don't drive the epidemic. So it's the adults that are driving it within a cluster of a family or a classroom, and that the children uh, may need much more exposure. And But um, Melbourne is in a quite a unique position. They've done a lot of testing. And so they'll be able to add to a body of knowledge that we don't really have internationally yet, and that is, did they at school, when when apparently there are some cases that they think were acquired at school, uh, did they have a long and close relationship with their best friend or is it somebody they sit close to at, uh, in the classroom or is it a more um, casual uh, exposure? So that will tell, tell us how child-to-child exposure occurs. So that will be a very important piece of epidemiology that we're looking forward to reading. Mm, that's really uh, great to hear that at least there'll be some positive outcome from all the testing that uh, Victoria has been doing. Mary Louise, I'm absolutely so very grateful for your time and your really amazing expertise in this area. It's just been very illuminating and enlightening. And uh, I want to thank you on behalf of our listeners who no doubt have also found it really valuable to hear your really well-informed and reasoned views on the current situation for us here in Victoria. I wish you all the luck uh, in the world, and we're um, we're all um, sending our very best wishes to you. And you're all really brave uh, going through all of this, and you're not alone. Thank you so much.